Autism through cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on this project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. Merry Christmas, one and all, and welcome to a special festive episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Today, the team tackle the 1993 stop-motion animated cult classic, The Nightmare Before Christmas, directed by Henry Selick and written by Tim Burton. The jolly hosts of this Jingle Bell episode are Ethan Lyon, John James Laidlow, Janet Harbord and David Hartley. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome, everybody, to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Welcome back. And uh, Merry Christmas to all of you who might be listening to this on what we hope will be the day that it will be released, which hopefully will be Christmas Eve. So, um, yeah, thank you if you've decided to listen to this podcast on Christmas Eve. Uh, We hope you're all having a very restful and uh, delightful festive period. This is a special uh, Christmassy episode of our podcast. We We sort of counted forward and we saw that we had a, a release date due on uh, Christmas Eve so we thought we'd do a, a Christmassy one um, and we've picked out a, a classic Christmas movie to to talk about today uh, we are going to be discussing um, The Nightmare Before Christmas and I'll say a little bit about that in a moment and the sort of reasons why we've picked this one out uh, but uh, joining me David Hartley on the podcast today we have our regulars uh, Janet Harbord John James Laidlow and Ethan Lyon. Uh, Ethan has been a special guest with us before in the past, but we're sort of welcoming him on board now as a more of a regular feature. So thank you for coming back again, Ethan. And thank you to Janet and John James for joining us as well. So yeah, as I say, we are, uh, we're talking today about um, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, and I've uh, written a, a bit of an introduction to the film, so I'll read this out and then uh, we'll get started on our discussion. So, uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas was released in 1993 and it was directed by Henry Selick um, and sort of written and created and conceived uh, by Tim Burton. In fact, it's often referred to as Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, So it's a stop-motion animated musical fantasy gothic film, which is a Christmas film, but is also in many ways a kind of Halloween film. It's about a fantasy world where there is this kind of magical dark forest that contains trees with doorways that lead to various kind of holiday-themed worlds. Um, We never really see any of the others, but there appears to be kind of like a Valentine's world and an Easter world and a Thanksgiving world and all these other ones. But we are mostly based in Halloween Town, where everything is very gothic and dark and twisted and slightly hellish and undead. And all of the inhabitants are entirely centred on celebrating Halloween every year. One of the key figures in this world is Jack Skellington, who is voiced by uh, Chris Sarandon. Um, who is a kind of living, sort of a living jack-o'-lantern skeleton man with very long, thin limbs. Um, and he seems to be kind of the main terror or, or figure that scares people in this particular world. And he's kind of revered by the other uh, inhabitants of Halloween Town. He's a kind of princely character in many ways. Um, however, we soon discover that Jack is quite lonely and seemingly quite bored as well of of Halloween. Um, uh, he aspires to, to, to be more and do more things. He goes off wandering and he finds the entrance to Christmas Land and he stumbles through. And when he lands in Christmas Land, which is this kind of very stereotypical um, winter wonderland uh, kind of Santa's workshop style place, uh, he becomes enamoured with the, the magic of Christmas. And then upon returning to Halloween land, he then tries to get the people of Halloween land to kind of emulate Christmas uh, and do away with Halloween for a year and celebrate Christmas instead. Much to the kind of confusion and bemusement of the various Halloween town ghouls. 
Um, and the situation escalates as Jack becomes kind of ever more obsessed uh, with this idea and the various hijinks ensue. Um, it's also worth noting as well that there's a, a kind of romantic love figure in the film as well. This uh, character called Sally, who's a kind of stitched together doll um, made by a sort of Franken, her kind of Frankenstein father. Uh, she's voiced by Catherine O'Hara and she spends most of the film sort of just watching Jack from the sidelines and just sort of following him around and being a little bit kind of um, sort of falling in love with him, but also a bit concerned about the, the way things are going. Anyway, okay, we'll talk a little bit more about it. But the, we, the reason why we picked this one out particularly as our Christmas film from all of the other Christmas film options, um, there were two reasons. One, one being that it kind of sprung to mind as a film that's kind of about an outsider who sort of peels away from the typical ways of doing things um, and is, is perhaps a bit eccentric and a bit different. Um, but the second reason, which I think is quite interesting, we'll discuss this a bit more, I think, is that um, the writer and main creative force behind the film, Tim Burton, it has been suggested that he may well be autistic. Um, now then, we have to be a little bit careful here because to, to sort of provide caveats, because the origin of Burton's supposed autism is, is not exactly a kind of recognised diagnostic route, necessarily. Um, this has all come primarily from his, from Tim Burton's wife, Helena Bonham Carter, his wife and kind of long-time collaborator. She's been in many of his films. Um, he met her when he cast her apparently as a as an ape in um, Planet of the Apes. That's where they met when he did the reboot for that. And she's been in many of his films since then. And they're married and they have a child. Um, and uh, so in 2005, Helena Bonham Carter was promoting a a TV movie that she was in, a TV movie called Magnificent Seven, which was on the BBC. Um, it's not not the Western, the Magnificent Seven, a kind of uh, social realism sort of film, which I haven't actually seen, uh, and in, in which Helena Bonham Carter plays the lead role. She plays a woman called Jackie Jackson, who is a real-life mother of seven children, four of whom are autistic. So Helena Bonham Carter was playing a kind of character here that has, uh, in a in a... TV movie about autism in some ways um, and apparently she was doing some research and her and Tim Burton were watching a, film, a documentary about autism and they apparently recognised some of those traits in Tim in, in Burton, uh, he apparently sort of said oh that, that's kind of me um, and this was all this girl came out in an interview she did with the Evening Standard which I have, I've got an actual uh, quote from here, she says, uh, it says she thinks Burton might have a tendency towards the autistic I, and she says, I bet a lot of animators are Asperger's, she says. Uh, Tim will kill me, but while making this drama, I realised he has a bit of Asperger's in him. You start recognising the signs. We were watching a documentary about autism, and he said that was how he felt as a child. Um, she then says, she then goes on to say that autistic people have... Uh, have application and dedication. You can say something to Tim when he's working and he doesn't hear you. But that quality also makes him have a fantastic father. He has an amazing sense of humour and imagination. He sees things other people don't see. Um, Billy is enchanted by him, and I think Billy is their um, is their son. Uh, so that's quite that's quite interesting. So I mean, it's not like a an, an actual. I, I, there's no record to say that that Tim Burton has there's been you know officially diagnosed as autistic he doesn't he doesn't seem to talk about it himself in interviews or in any kind of anything that i've found anyway doesn't seem to sort of confirm it um but it's interesting to think of it in that way obviously helena bottom carter is not a doctor she's not a professional so she doesn't really know this but she, i suppose she has a little bit of connection through this this tv show that she did um so we can maybe think about this film as coming from the the mind of, a, of an autistic creative potentially but that's something we can discuss so that's it really um obviously this is a film a really well-loved film it's a cult film as you often see people wearing t-shirts and posters and so on with this film um it's quite a fun and exciting film but it's not without its problems as well uh so i i i invite our guests to our hosts to um to to talk about this film and, and give us some insight into the nightmare before christmas well, firstly, uh, thank you uh, all for having me back on. It's uh, it's uh, lovely to be here. Um, for me, The Nightmare Before Christmas is not something I grew up with. Um, Christmas, in general, is not something I have the warmest feeling towards. 
in a very autistic way, I have problems with the concept of organised mandatory fun. Um, but I'm aware that that is a personal quirk. Um, nevertheless, uh, I became aware of this film because of my housemate, who is as much of a fan of this as you can get. They have two mugs of Jack Skellington and they have a Jack Skellington uh, onesie. And it was a couple of years ago, it was Halloween night 2019, uh, and uh, we saw it as, I believe, a house in the front room with all of the lights turned off. And I was not a fan the first time around. I thought it was a bit slow in places, and as I think we're going to get on to later, it's got some very uncomfortable elements of race to it. But on a rewatch, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it. And I think in some cases it made far more sense seeing it as a film either unconsciously or indirectly related to autism and the, the uh, experience of being autistic and trying to conform to what everybody wants from you. And then again, I also think animation in itself is quite an autistic medium, but I will get onto that. Uh, in those assertions later. So, yes, I, I think I might have discovered a Christmas film that actually works for me for once. Ethan, can I ask about the onesie? Is it a is it like various Jack Skeletons in different poses as patterned across the onesie, or is it does he do you literally look like Jack Skeleton when you put the onesie on? So I've not seen it in a little while, but to my memory, I believe it was more the latter rather than the former. That's impressive. <laughs> it very much was. I, I was thinking about the film in uh, in relation to to two things really to to thinking about outsiders, and I was trying to work out in the film who who was an outsider. Where does the outsider lie in this film? And it reminded me quite a lot, perhaps fairly obviously, of Edward Scissorhands. The idea that 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 the figures we see are related to to construction, to a workshop, to being made. We get to see all of that. Um, and also that, like Edward, there's there's this idea of kind of like not fitting, of, of, of miscommunication, of misreadings, um, and the discomfort of that. And, of course, with Edward Scissorhands, we see him gradually become... Um, uh, welcomed into a community by the women, but not but not by the men, and that plays out in a certain way. Um, whereas this film, I thought, threw the the binary into the air a, a little bit more than um, Edward Scissorhands. I thought there were that the, on the one hand we get to see, um, you know, what seems like quite a, a joyful attempt by uh by the character of you know jack skeleton to to move from halloween into a different genre you know he's going he's going into christmas great he's doing something different he's doing something new um but then he he and, and the folk of of halloween town seem to misread what christmas is and and that set up quite an interesting set of questions about who who was misreading whom at that point you know is it that they misunderstand misunderstand Christmas or is it that the people of Christmas town can't stand their difference and their different interpretation and the part of the film where um where Jack Skeleton has delivered presents has uh given what he considers to be gifts to the children of the town that you know which they have opened and of course they're not their regular Christmas gifts and they've been scared by them and so on um and we get you know Jack's perplexity about that like you know what's what's gone wrong the presents aren't being well received um and he flies into the sky and then he's he's shot down and the kind of the confusion in that moment which i, I found quite a, a moving scene in the film actually when he's riding through the sky and you know the lights are this kind of world war ii lights are scanning the sky for him there, there are bombs coming being fired and he sees it's oh you know they're they're, they're, they're shining lights on me 
because they want to say thanks. It's gratitude. And so his misreading of that situation, which is quite a horrible kind of violent response to this to, 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 to this different interpretation of Christmas. So, yeah, I'm wondering what other people thought about that, about where miscommunication takes place in the film and uh, whether we can think about that through... Um, through the you know the the general trope of misunderstanding and miscommunication that we we come across quite regularly in this podcast. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, observation. I think on the film, uh, the one thing that it makes me think is, um, for me, that this is a, a, a the, the sort of narrative of the film becomes about um, about obsession, really, in a, in a way, with Jack. Um, he he's delighted by what he finds at Christmas Town. He thinks it's just the most magical and wonderful thing. Um, brings it back to Halloween Town, and then spends. It is interesting initially how he is. Um, yeah, he's quite. He's almost like a giddy child, and he's very positive and glowy about this, and he really wants this to work in Halloween Town, and he's really enthusiastic about it. But he, then he becomes ever more increasingly obsessed, and for a time he becomes sort of shut away in his um, in his tower in where he lives. It is kind of. Um, this big sort of lonely mansion house where he is and spends a lot of time sort of pulling apart Christmas really and trying to figure out what it is and how exactly it works almost like it's a, a mechanism in a way uh, he's got all these diagrams and experiments that he's running and figuring it all out and 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 that tips things from um you know as this kind of jolly and happy enthusiastic idea that he has into a more dangerous obsession, which very quickly starts spilling over into things like kidnapping Santa, and uh, uh, and and you know, it's almost like the kind of ghoulish Halloweeny side of him can't can't be squashed down. It sort of emerges, yeah, and uh, and he can't stop himself. And actually, towards the end, he he is returning back to being this this fearful figure, this this ghoul figure, and he has this kind of. Um, contention all the way through about whether he is a nice uh you know he's he is the replacement of santa effectively and he's delivering presents to people and he is like a nice figure or if he's just never ever going to be that and he's always just going to be this horrible um this horrible sort of figure and i think we, we sort of relate that to to misreading of situations and also to to autism and i wonder if there's a as a reflection there on perhaps the tendencies of um, uh, autistic people to sort of go down that route of becoming singularly obsessed or uh, interested, very deeply interested in a particular area. Um, not to say that that's necessarily a negative thing to do, but that, that, that there can be negative consequences to that because, you, you know, we talk about things like becoming a recluse or becoming an eccentric, and, and sometimes these things are are linked to autistic people and autistic figures of the past. Um, and how that, yeah, and how that then can transform and turn into quite fundamental mis miscommunications and misunderstandings of various situations. Um, so I thought that was kind of the interesting element of the the narrative that I that I thought. I there is a real part of me which agrees with you on one part, in as much as yes, it's about. I I, I definitely felt very connected to the the obsession, the desire to know, but at the same time. I felt it. I felt it less ghoulish and disturbing, and more utterly charming. His attempts to kidnap Santa Claus, because what he is doing, in my mind, um, and it's interesting. You also mentioned him trying to break Christmas down into a very variety of parts that are logical and easy to understand. Is he's been presented with something new and exciting, which he does not understand on a fundamental level, and is trying to break it down in the only way he can understand, and that is through the lens of Halloween. He has only ever known the concept of Halloween, the concept of scaring people, and the concept of, shall we say, slightly underhand deeds. In my mind, him kidnapping Santa Claus is not like a, a, a way for him to cause mayhem. That's his interpretation of what a good action is. That's his attempt to do good effectively. And I felt very, very connected to Jack in those moments because it felt very similar to deeply terrible teenage and pre-teenage 
social interactions I had where I just missed the mark absolutely interpreting things only within the limited understanding of the world that I had due to my autism and just just oh oh making so many mistakes oh so I so I I I, I think this time around I really felt very very warmly towards Jack and his attempts to understand Christmas as like a sort of a, a hyperfixation because it was new, it was exciting, it didn't make sense and now I've got to understand it and now I've, I want to learn. So I found it just incredibly sweet in that respect. Um, I, I thought that perhaps um, Jack's, Jack's obsession with sort of breaking down Christmas and explaining it could, could, could partly be to... to um, to better understand the the components, and uh, I, I remember being young and sort of taking taking things apart and clocks apart and stuff to work out how how they work. Um, but and then never been able to put them back together. But I remember. But, but there's a scene where where Jack comes back to Halloween Town and he's trying to tell everyone about um, Christmas and 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 he's trying to convey. I guess how it made him feel, and um, and and in a way, Jack Jack gets Christmas straight away. He's he's really excited when he gets there. Um, it's the it's the other residents of Halloween Town that can't can't conceive it outside of their their own limited view. Um, I, I mean, I guess they've never left Halloween Town at that point, so that they. They keep making it sort of sinister, and and so he has to try to use their language to explain something that they're not understanding. So I think that's what leads him to to start trying to break it down. Is he he's he's thinking how can I get all these um, all these sort of um, Gaulish figures to to understand the, the excitement of Christmas? Um, so yeah. I, Part of me thinks it's not it's not um it's not Jack's communication that's limited, it's the other's ability to listen. That sounds very familiar. Uh, another thing in terms of Jack, we've talked about sort of uh, I think it was Janet who quite uh, interestingly talked about the breaking down of binaries in terms of uh, good and bad in relation to sort of looking at it and compared to Edward Scissorhands. And that, I think, is something very, very interesting as well that I'd like to bring up about Jack as a character, as a physical entity, which is that Jack arguably is largely quite androgynous in appearance. I mean, apart from the suit, there's really no physical characteristic that would mark him as ostensibly male, obviously, apart from the name. And his face in itself is a very simple object. It's uh, a few moving parts, the eyes, the, the no nose, uh, the smile. And the emotions that he creates are very big and very uh, exaggerated. And so they are very easy for an, a, for an autistic audience to understand. But I would imagine as well for an autistic individual who may or may not see the social strictures of gender uh, as being unnecessary. I can see why perhaps Jack might be a figure of identification because he is just sort of that very boundary crossing figure. I might be barking up entirely the wrong tree, but I'd be interested to know what you guys think. Um, when, when Janet mentioned um, sort of um the gender sort of uh, um, roles in Edward Scissorhands. It did, did get me thinking about Sally in the film because she's very much like Jack. She's an outsider. Um, and I feel she's quite, she's quite badly treated in the film. Like her, I thought it was her husband, but it's supposed to be her, her dad, her creator, um, Dr. Finkelstein. Um, he, he, you know, he locks her up and takes her arm away and, and he's, he's really horrible to her. Um, but I mean, Jack isn't that much better. He, 
he um until the end of the film he sort of he ignores her insight as as the other members of Halloween Town have done to him um and he sort of just gives her a task to to make his outfit and um yeah I, I wonder if she is uh, similar in you know could be seen as a as a figure of an an autistic figure or sort of an outsider figure as well as Jack and it's quite interesting that she's ignored as a lot of um a lot of women and non-binary people are in, in by the not just the medical establishment but also media um yeah i th- i felt that the romance was kind of a bit weird as well a bit rushed and forced um i, I was just thinking it might it might be nicer if they sort of came to a to a mutual sort of understanding and and, and sort of um Sally Sally and Jack helped each other find friendship or or understanding in this town when when no one else understands them so I thought I thought that was interesting yeah he sort of doesn't look twice at her does he like for the, for the most part of the film like he he's not actually that interested in in her i mean he's he's quite gentle and sweet with her in some ways but you're right he just he gives her a task like he gives all of the other people a task where it's clear that Tim Burton is driving towards these two being their romantic pairing. Um, and she does spend a lot of the time, you know, sort of fawning after him in a way and, and watching him. But yeah, she, she's she's quite also quite wise. She's the one that sees that it's not going in the, the, the right direction and that it's not, um, it's not it, that it's going, it's getting out of hand, all right? And she, she's sort of the, the, almost like the moral compass, I guess, of the film. When, when something is going wrong, we look, we get her face and her reaction. And she's like, oh, maybe not, shouldn't do this kind of thing. And she does try and warn him. Um, so it's quite interesting to think of her as a slightly different figure within this world of Halloween Town as well, because she, and she is a bit different because she's she's been, presumably she's been sort of constructed within the town. She's been made by this kind of eccentric Frankenstein style doctor who has stitched her together and brought her to life. So in a way she's almost like she's not, uh, she's almost like a, not a natural inhabitant of the town. She's been sort of created for it and therefore also has that kind of out, slightly outsider's perspective, sort of sees sees the reality of things. She's a bit of a dreamer and she's a bit of a romantic um, and she's not necessarily, doesn't seem as, as interested necessarily as getting involved with the kind of, the, the fear and the scary side of Halloween Town. She doesn't seem to be this one that's going to be jumping out and screaming in people's faces like everybody else does. She's more of a drifting and gentle kind of romantic character. I agree with you, John James. I think at the end that that kind of romantic clinch was a bit um, shoehorned in, a bit rushed. It's very beautifully done, and like that with that iconic sort of hill kind of curled up cliff thing that they kind of wander along with the big moon in the background and you know that's become a a very iconic image from this film um but it 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 sort of was a bit suddenly suddenly he sees her and suddenly realizes that she is um somebody he could have a kind of romantic attachment to um but maybe that that's a a marker of the, the time when it was made potentially but um yeah, but nevertheless, she is an interesting figure. She is this constructed person who uh, needs to sort of find her own way through this particular world. Um, it would have been nice to get to know her a little bit more in, in a way, actually, to be honest. So I have some thoughts on Sally. The first being, there is actually, I was doing some reading yesterday in preparation for this, there is a novelization coming out called All Hail the Pumpkin Queen, which is a young adult novel which will be set it will be set after the events of nightmare before christmas from sally's perspective i'm very very excited to see where that goes because uh sally is i'll be honest sally i think is my favorite character in the film i have a soft spot for her partly because i think all the things that you mention about her being sort of this very kind sort of gentle uh, sort of quite sort of romantic figure. I, I just find her very endearing and I find her her presence just sort of very kind and understanding and a sort of a voice of reason in an otherwise sort of slightly gone gone loopy world where they where they've just 
lost all their sense when Christmas appears. Um, and heaven knows that I've gotten very, very into things in the past and and other people around me have kind of gone, what in God's name is possessing you now, Ethan? So I kind of related to her there. I did tear up a little bit. I did feel a little bit emotional at the final romantic sequence, but I agree with you. It, non, I think structurally, yeah, it is shoehorned in. I don't think it's a very successful way to end the story, but I really liked it nonetheless because it was two characters who I genuinely cared about having some form of understanding that, oh, you know, you've been there for me, even though I've been a complete fool and not noticed it. So, yeah, lots of different things for me. Um, and it's interesting as well that Sally, despite everything you've very legitimately said in terms of Sally's overall place in the narrative, also, yeah, it's very weird, uh, John James, how the Finkelstein is like partly her father, partly her dad. And I think it gets even weirder at the end where you see Finkelstein being pushed along by one of his creations who he calls my pet. And it's very clearly like a female version of himself. That you can, you, if you, um, if you're aware of the concept of Disney bounding, Disney bounding is where adults dress in sort of uh, modern clothing that resembles a Disney character and they will go to the parks and just have a day out being, I don't know, simultaneously 15 and 25. And that sounds a little sneery from my part and I shouldn't really because it's 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 part of, it's the fun of being an, an adult. But Sally is very popular, especially around Halloween time for female cosplayers uh, and voice artists. There's a very, very good one by a woman called Anna Brisbane. Uh, which I think was the very first time I saw Sally uh, Disney bound. But yeah, it, it, I, I think that she is, for many people, quite popular. And I think it's especially notable that this year for Halloween, when they did the re-recording, like a sort of a, a, a live performance of um, Nightmare Before Christmas's soundtrack, which we should get onto at some point. It was Billie Eilish who played Sally and who was very, very good. Very, very good singing Sally's song really very excellent so there's i think there's well i think yeah she's probably not the most developed character she's someone who i think like jack a lot of people feel very close to that's really interesting ethan i didn't i didn't know that i i shall hunt that out um i agree with everything that's been said about sally i i had that feeling about her and i think it's i think in many ways she's she's sort of frames the action for us certainly frames jack for us in the film she's our sort of stand in of this this is how we view this is how we view Jack's misreading is, is through Sally. And I think she she holds the anxiety that we have, that we know he's got it wrong, you know, and but but she's also quite powerless to do anything about it. And I think that's slightly the frustration about her role in this is, you know, in terms of gender, that that she's kind of the seer who stands on the sidelines and, and doesn't have any power. Um but but I think also what what what's been brought up earlier about about the way that she's made and, and also the, the description of, of Jack um, and his, you know, his sort of very sleek, very slender figure and in terms of, his, of, of the puppet, you know, not there's not a lot there, but it's very streamlined. Whereas with Sally, we get something else. We get something that's much more sort of... Um, uh, sort of plumped out, detailed, gendered than than we get with Jack, um, and and we also get to see, as as been said, you know, a, a limb falling off, and that happens elsewhere in the film. And I was just thinking, as you were speaking about the the the, the role of puppetry in this, that, that that stop motion has kind of this this physicality to it that the other forms of animation doesn't. Um, we we can see th how things are made and how they're taken apart. And this film seems to exercise a fair amount of joy in, in showing us that, um, including the unravelling of Oogie Boogie at the end, which is quite um, well, very pleasurable because he's such a, a, a problematic character. Um, but, but I was thinking about that in terms of physical disability. What you know, There's definitely a resonance with that. There's a figure in a wheelchair. There are limbs that are that fall off them and put back stitched back on is is this a is this a sort of useful 
way of approaching physical disability. Um, it's quite playful, it's reversible, or, or is it one of caricature? I think that's a really, really interesting question, Janet. And I feel like the answer is probably a combination of both, as with all things in life, but I would lean towards it perhaps being more celebratory than overtly mocking. You are right to uh, suggest that there is an element of caricature, but I would also qualify that by saying that it is often inhabiting certain archetypes of horror, and especially gothic horror, of which uh, Burton, the original writer of the story, and arguably Selick a little bit, are big fans of. Um, and in that, there is always... Um, it's, uh, I believe it's Eve uh, Kofosky-Sedgwick who... Uh, notes that the Gothic is about creating an atmosphere of pleasurable fear. And I think that's a very important line to remember when considering disability in Nightmare Before Christmas, where ostensibly the there may be something disturbing about the wheelchair-bound uh, doctor or Sally who can sew her own limbs back on, uh, but they can also be seen as reflexive and critiquing um, ableist stereotypes by placing them in a more light-hearted, almost childlike context where they are presented as not only matter-of-fact, but slightly almost celebratory. I mean, Sally's uh, limbs being um, detachable is a key plot point here at the end of the film. And so I, I, I find that I, I find that the, the, the nature of difference in um, I find I find largely that the nature of difference in Nightmare Before Christmas is actually very positive, and I feel that it's you may be different, but there is good in that difference. I'm not quite sure how to relate it to the fact that it is overall a film about Halloween, i.e., when you need to be scared and people don't like to be scared at Christmas. Not quite sure how my argument how holds up to that because you can definitely see that as you need to be kept in your corner. But I think by and large that the community of Halloween Town is one that is fundamentally disabled, by which I mean they are not largely able-bodied individuals, and yet they are one that exists primarily in a sense of harmony and in a sense of solidarity with each other and with Jack, who can, let's be honest, detach his head and move it around like a bowling ball. So I think there's a lot of different elements to consider there. Yeah, you're, you're prompt about Eve Sedgwick there. Ethan reminded me of Vivian Sobchak's work on, um, on the phantom limb. And people may or may not know that Sobchak had a, a, an above the knee uh, amputation of her of her left leg and she writes about this started to write about this really interestingly in 2010s and she's continued to um and she uh, one of her articles is about is named phantom limb and a phenomenology and she talks interestingly in that about how the phantom limb brings up all sorts of ghostings about bodies uh, what, what we're haunted by and one of those is the idea of wholeness you know that 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 uh, disability raises for other people an anxiety about what is considered whole, what is considered perfect, what is considered normal. So I think that that film, you know, this film plays with those ideas in, in quite an interesting way. Yeah, and just to add to that as well, that, that just reminds me of um, a, a book by, uh, I hope I don't pronounce this, Ato Kiesen, Ato Kiesen, I think his name is, um, who has written about uh, this concept he calls aesthetic nervousness, which is by which he sort of refers to um, the kind of representations of disability and, and whenever a, a disabled figure uh, sort of appears within literature, he's more interested in literature, but also in, in film, um, that there's, there's this kind of encounter with disability causes what he calls an aesthetic nervousness, this sort of like, anxiety sort of twitch i guess around um how to deal with the the this sudden appearance of a disabled figure and i think the refreshing thing as you were driving towards there ethan about halloween town is exactly that that you 
it's it's part and parcel of that world and it's playful and it's and it's not a problem and it's and in many ways it's a very accessible community because the yeah you're right that there are various different people who have various different um disabilities in many ways and they can and they sort of share in that and 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 it doesn't become a, a huge problem necessarily and actually it's just sort of a this kind of an energy in that and 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 I guess the I suppose if you were to follow this sort of the idea of aesthetic nervousness, the nervousness comes in when the the new element is introduced, which is Christmas, and that becomes the 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 element that they can't quite understand and can't quite fathom and can't quite fit in, and so it sort of maybe suggests that in the Christmas town where there doesn't really appear to be as much presence of disability or beyond that like when jack starts going delivering presents to what is i guess ostensibly the real world um that there's you don't see much disability in those realms um and there's a question there about how this much more disabled society this community doesn't quite fit with the the broader sort of more non-disabled areas um and how maybe that's a, a component of why christmas doesn't quite fit within halloween town and how they can't quite understand it or quite quite fathom it perhaps there's something to be said there yeah interesting um but i was going to ask about the, the music uh the music is uh um composed by danny elfman um uh, Ethan is nodding very enthusiastically, so I think he's got something very uh, something to say about Danny. Yes. Yeah, do you want to jump in? I love the music to this film. It's amazing. I should start by saying that I've been a fan of Danny Elfman for a while. I knew his name for a while, obviously, in relation to Burton, but when I really became a fan of him was when I discovered Oingo Boingo. Now... To those who don't know what Oingo Boingo is, Oingo Boingo was a band from the late 70s to about the early 90s, fronted by Elfman and containing um, five or six musicians, including his brother Richard. They were originally called the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo, and they were a sort of a group of... Um, originally it was more like a cabaret act, uh, really, uh, which then became a pop group. They were sort of, in the early 80s, they were very sort of, they were a big pop group uh, alongside things like Devo um, and The Waitresses and all that sort of new wave stuff. And a lot of their music is very sort of fun and slightly aggressive and very anarchic. And actually, when we get on to talking about Oogie Woogie, it will be very useful to discuss a film that Elfman made with Oingo Boingo called The Forbidden Zone, but we'll get to that in a bit. But yes, his I love his music. I love his voice as Jack is superb. Uh, Chris Sarandon, for reference, plays Jack in the speaking parts, but it's um, it was almost originally conceived as an operetta in as much as the lyrics were written by um, Elfman before the actual, um, the actual dialogue was uh, written. And I, I love the music. I think it's fun and lively and uh, in some cases incredibly moving. Um, there's only one song I really hate and it's when it's the little the little goblin children yelling about kidnapping Sandy Claus because that song feels like a dirge that would get stuck in my head and give me some sort of terrible acolia and I'd not be able to get out of my head. So that song drives me up the wall. But... It starts possibly with the best musical number, best opening musical number I think of in pretty much any musical I know, and that's This Is Halloween, which um, is incredibly, which, which encapsulates the pleasurable fear aspect of the film, I think, perfectly, because it is about celebrating the spookiness and celebrating the strangeness of Christmas, uh, of Christmas? Mm, that's that's a Freudian slip. The strangeness of Halloween and the... Um, the fact that you wish to be frightened by what happens at Halloween, by the clown with a tearaway face who uh, goes, comes in a flash and leaves without a trace, or, you know, the monster under your bed um, with, its, with its huge glowing, uh, huge dripping fangs and its eyes glowing red. It's quotable. It's incredibly quotable. And uh, the poor, and for those who listening at home, the poor other members of the podcast had to listen to me singing This Is Halloween before we started. Um, 
So yes, I adore the music to this, as does my friend, actually, who became a huge Danny Elfman and Oingo Boingo fan because of Nightmare. It was a beautiful rendition, Ethan. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, thank you. Um, I, w- I was thinking um, about musicals in, in general, because, I mean, it, 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 is a, it is an animated musical, like a lot of um, Disney films. Um, and and sometimes I I struggle with musicals because they feel quite false. Like <laughs> I I don't I don't get why everyone's singing. <laughs> it really it, it it kind of irks me that people go from talking to singing. Like it it really stands out to me. Um, I really like Chicago because it makes sense that they sing. Um, and there's a Buffy musical episode where it makes sense that they sing because the demons put a curse on the town where they can't stop singing and dancing. But um, yeah, sometimes sometimes it just really stands out to me as as a performance. Like I can't fully buy it. And I, I so I was thinking about musicals and and the idea of performance and um, sort of social performance and um, how especially in the opening number, sort of everyone in Halloween Town has their sort of, um, not their place, but their like their role. Everyone works harmoniously together to pull off this one big event and sort of everyone is, um, is sort of embraced for their, what they can bring to this event. Um, so um, sort, of, sort of what we were talking about previously about um, Halloween Town being very accepting of difference or, or disability um, to a certain extent, not, not, not Oogie Boogie. Um, he's, he's not allowed to take part, but um, every, everyone else. Um, yeah, so there's no, but yeah, they, they all have their place within this sort of slightly horrifying, grotesque performance, but it, it's, it's, it feels it feels nice that they all get to join in. Yeah, I think you you bring out the the, the community side of musicals really well there, and I, and I think that there there certainly is a sense of the musical form being this collective genre rather than focused singly around um, the main character that we get. I also struggle with with musicals and the the. The breaking of the diegetic word into this strange song that happens, and then we all pretend it didn't happen. But but this actually, I enjoyed something that was you know more like a, a kind of operatic continuity of song throughout. That it seemed to be doing something else, which was was a little bit exhausting at times. It's kind of oh god, you know, and he's still you know now he's singing about this. Um, but they, but I also enjoyed the the kind of endurance, if you like, of, of describing everything that's happening in the form of song. I thought, I thought that was really impressive. And it, and it brought those, also those fairy tale um, kind of nursery rhyme elements to, to the film too. Um, but we seem to have arrived at this point of, of Oogie Boogie, who, who isn't indeed allowed to sing. Um, so maybe this is time for us to, to, to be thinking about what's problematic about him, and I think you know he there 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 is stuff written talked about about his um, his physical appearance being looking like a clansman. He has a sort of pale grey, whitish type beige uh, uh, costume, which eventually unravels. Um, there he's. A figure who is incredibly dislikable and and sort of gets the derogatory elements of the of the film narrative. He's you know he's he's the evil one who has to be undone. Um, and there was a, there's also some commentary about how this was discussed at the time of the production of the film that certain people on the set had problems with this, um, but but Burton was unwilling to to shift on it. So. Yes. What were other people's thoughts about this as a racist caricature? Yes. So I should first say that my friend, uh, my friend who I've mentioned, who was also an Oingo Boingo fan and a huge fan of um, 
Nightmare Nightmare Before Christmas. Their name is Brea, um, and so I'm giving them a shout out now because of uh, how much they helped me with this uh, by him giving me their opinions. They told me about uh, Burton, and apparently, and this is actually a very interesting thing, we've been talking a lot about this film in relation to uh, Tim Burton, when it says apparently as much Henry Selleck's creation, and Selleck struggled very hard to see his imprint his own vision onto the final film when Burton apparently would be quite insistent including with Oogie Boogie to the point where apparently Burton kicked a door in during an argument so incensed was he at the concept of Oogie Boogie being um, ripped out of the film or being changed in a way I think if I'm honest I do think that Oogie Boogie if not consciously racist definitely taps into various racist stereotypes around uh black men in particular being lecherous gambling interested only in pleasure and sort of causing harm effectively and to be fair as i said earlier there is there is prior form to this in terms of i do think it should be mentioned that composers like elfman grew up on the uh the soul sort of the the jazz records of people like uh, cab calloway uh Forbidden Zone, uh, the film I mentioned earlier, has an extended tribute to Cab Calloway where uh, Elfman himself plays Satan, uh, singing sort of a lyric revised version of Minnie the Moocher. And unfortunately, that is a film which in its at the very beginning includes a very obvious uh, blackface parody of uh, a black drug dealer. And it is very uncomfortable to watch. It was, I think it was described by Elfman's uh, brother, Richard, who directed the film as being sort of in the vein of um, Jewish comedians sort of putting on, certainly appropriating certain uh, stereotypes. And certainly I think you could probably link that back as far as Al Jolson and his blackface routine. But none of that erases the fact that, yeah, Oogie Woogie definitely is a figure who is inspired in some way by very but by by cultural stereotypes that are deeply entrenched in white racism and even if it was not conscious it's still very much there that's my two cents at the very least um so i think i think it was the the screenwriter who who sort of um Tried to, tried to bring up how problematic the character might be with with Tim Burton, um, uh, and she she was um, she was quite insistent, and and so was um, uh, Selleck that they should change Oogie Boogie so that so that um, when, when his um, when his costume is ripped off, it, it's the mayor inside, but Tim Tim Burton didn't didn't like that um and and that yeah that it, it's alleged that he got he got very angry about it um and insistent um and so like even the name oogie boogie is is a, is a derogatory term from the south and um he he's voiced by um a black actor who who himself didn't actually see the connection and and didn't um he 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 didn't have a problem with it himself but um but there ha- there has been backlash online about about not just this character but it but sort of Tim Burton's insistence on a very sort of uh whitewashed world um where it consists almost entirely of of white people um and and i think in in trying to defend it he said that um it didn't it didn't fit with his aesthetic or he wouldn't he wouldn't put black people or people and um, people of color in his films just to be politically correct which it which is it, it just seems very strange to me it's i think the insistence on sticking with this choice it is more telling than the, than the actual choice itself. Like if 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 he'd if he'd acknowledged that he he grew up 
in this world and and you know he he has his biases and he he said yeah I'll, I'll make an effort in the future but um yeah just insisting that he doesn't listen to any feedback um and it did make me think when we were talking earlier of um sort of um rigid focus and how Tim Burton has a very specific of a very white um aesthetic and he won't he won't divert from that so you can yeah i think he's sort of yeah running run into problems by not by not being open to change hearing burton say and i don't remember the exact wording i believe it was along the lines of i uh something along the lines of it doesn't fit into my artistic worldview or something strange like that i don't remember the exact wording so i may be doing burton a disservice and if so i apologize but hearing something which to me was interpreted as that was very uncomfortable was very uncomfortable um yes and very backwards looking as well which i found very very depressing um and if you do look in burton's filmography i do struggle to see anybody of color um really taking a significant role in his works. Um, I've not seen all of Burton's filmography, I must confess, but the ones I have seen, I don't really remember any faces other than exclusively white. So I, I just looked this up myself on um, on the computer just to see what's going on here. And, and you're right, that, that this criticism was kind of angled at him a few years ago, 2016, when um, he brought out um, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Uh, which is predominantly white cast, but there there is a leading role in there played by Samuel L. Jackson, and it was pointed out by someone that that, that basically Samuel Jackson's lead role in this film was the first time that a a, a lead role had been played by a black black actor in in a Burton film, um, and he sort of he fluffed the response to this really uh, like um yeah he was he was trying to go for this kind of post racial sort of like i don't want to just put a black figures you know non non white people into my films just to be politically correct and got all a bit huffy about it and that's absolutely the wrong um reaction to have to that and i hope he's like learned something about that maybe and we'll address that in future films maybe but yeah he has this this very singularly white uh sort of vision which sort of clicks into his obsession with i guess the kind of that sort of grows out of the gothic and and how that's that's always been a very um it's always been about kind of pale and ghostly white gothic figures and, and so on um it is a shame and i always felt the same about oogie, oogie boogie um oogie boogie is that the name yeah oogie boogie uh you know as soon as we get to that moment it's sort of like they've they've gone it's like they've gone deeper down into the kind of the underground of hollywood of um halloween town and whereas on halloween town surface it's it's scary stuff but it's all safe and nice but here's the actual real terror is this this kind of this this sort of dark and mysterious and slightly exotic um you know almost African coded black world where there's this person who's doing some actually really horrible things like leching over women and gambling and, and being nasty and violent and has, has torture equipment and stuff. And this, suddenly it's actually actual horrible stuff rather than the kind of play about horrible stuff. And that's really problematic, really difficult. It reminded me of, um, it reminded me of King Louis from the jungle book, which is a similarly sort of diff, you know, similarly sort of structured sort of appearance of a black character within a very predominantly sort of white or white sounding or white coded cast. Um, and suddenly you have uh, Louis Armstrong appearing as King Louis and as the King Louis, the orangutan and, and singing what is a really catchy and, and, and entertaining King of the jungle King of the Swingers uh, song is really nice in some ways and I remember singing it a lot when I was a kid but coming back to that as an adult you think wow this is this is really different this is really bad this is really problematic not only is it an, a monkey character an ape character but he's like um, swinging around and he's and he's threatening and it's dangerous and so on um, and that's what it put me in mind of watching this but yeah it was an uncomfortable moment and, it, and it's I'm glad we've we've addressed it really I also think uh, you mentioned about him being African coded. 
And I'd almost go a little bit further and say that there, he is very specifically almost Southern coded. Uh, the way that he speaks is resemblant of, as I said a little earlier, things like um, New Orleans jazz and that sort of uh, Camp Calloway era uh, music where there is, where, you know, it's it's from the nightclubs of Harlem so on and so forth and there's a very strong jazz element there um yeah and so I, I i find that a very very interesting cultural reference point as well and i think one that probably i'm not sure who we would touch on who we would associate that with would we associate that with burton and burton's vision of things would we associate that more with um elfman and his background and his love of that era i don't know but yes, it is, it's something that we did need to address. Although having said that, us largely being, to, to my knowledge, us being white individuals ourselves, we are always going to approach an issue like this from a slightly skewed standpoint anyway. So I think only time will tell as to how uh, nuanced our critiques are. I think that that's true, Ethan, and it's worth pointing out that we're we're white people discussing this. Um, but I, I also think that, as John James said, you know, it's the, it's it's important to to think about it. You know, and the fact that Tim Burton can't even contemplate, think with that, sit with that thought, that he might he might be operating in a way that's racist, is is the real problem. And I think it's important for us as white people to be thinking about issues of race so that it's not the burden of black people to do so. No, I completely agree with you. I completely agree. It was also very pleasurable to see that figure unravel at the end. I I hated that. Oh, please go on, John James. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, it's quite, it's quite sad and disappointing that in a film that is about embracing outsiders and, and the, these sort of figures that don't quite fit in, there still has to be a figure especially when it's racially coded that that's that's sort of he's he's um locked away essentially so i think i think it's it kind of it's disappointing uh, especially considering the message of the film um and um yeah it's i think if we're thinking of it as an or if we're thinking of the film through a lens of autism as well it it, it is it is um it it's similar to how Sally is sort of not fully accepted. This sort of racially coded character is not fully accepted. It, it does it does sort of mirror a lot of aut autistic spaces as well in that there is a there is a huge racial bias and it's something that that we do have to work on, especially as Ethan said, as white people, that we need to make sure that we're we're not perpetuating this and that we're open opening these doors to people yeah absolutely i think that's that's very true and um i think i heard your cat agreeing with you in the background then john james as well so good to know that we have um the feline approval as well um okay well let's uh let's we've been talking for over an hour now so let's let's uh bring that to a close um and uh, just to say, I think it'd be nice to say just at the end here that to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to to this episode. And we hope you're all having a, a pleasant, festive period, whatever you might be doing, whether you're celebrating Christmas or just taking some time off or relaxing, whatever it is. And and thank you for thank you for listening to this, and thank you for listening for tuning in to, um, to our podcast uh, throughout the year this year. If you have been doing, um, it's been really nice to see that people have been enjoy enjoying this uh, our discussions. Um, and once again, if anyone does have any uh, additional thoughts that they want to give to us, any of our listeners, then please do just uh, find ways to send messages to us and we'd be happy to read those. Uh, and we may even find a way of kind of reading them out at some point in the future. It would be really nice. Um, okay, so let's uh, draw it to a close there. Thank you very much um, to everyone who was here today contributing. Thank you to Janet and to John James and to Ethan. Um, and we'll be back again in the new year with uh, with another episode. Um, but until then, um, uh, we hope everyone's well and happy and good. And thank you again for listening. Goodbye. Merry Christmas. <laughs>
Thank you, Santa. <laughs> you have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project from Queen Mary, University of London and the Wellcome Trust. Thanks also to Leverett Jakes for supporting us with their unfailingly excellent editing skills. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion of the films we talk about, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email us at cinemaautism at gmail.com. That's cinemaautism with a shared A in the middle of the word. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now.